Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today's podcast is sponsored by Indeed. Indeed makes it easy to connect with your applicants. No need to install any extras. Indeed's virtual interviews works from your browser. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Peter. Offer valid through April 30th. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Mint Mobile. For people who hate their phone bill and are ready to cut the cord with Big Wireless, cut your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free at mintmobile.com gold. Before I get into today's podcast, I want to remind everybody listening that I launched my Locals page yesterday, and so the podcast was uploaded yesterday evening. Now, it was actually uploaded a lot later than normal because we had a huge power failure here in Puerto Rico, and so I lost internet service, and it took a lot longer to upload the podcast. In fact, today's release on Shift Radio and YouTube is also going to be later than normal thanks to this power outage. But anybody who wants to listen to my podcast a day early and commercial-free should go to my Locals page and sign up. I'm really excited about that new platform, and I have a lot of stuff in store for the people who join me in that community. Oh, and by the way, a lot of people have mentioned that they really missed the video, and I promise I will be returning to video. It will be available on my Locals page, but also on Shift Radio and YouTube. That is my goal, to return to a video format, but I'm waiting until I finish building and equipping my new studio. So bear with me, but at some point, those videos are coming back. But in the meantime, join me on my Locals channel because I think that's going to be a much better way to experience my podcast and all the other content that I put out. The big news that came out since my last podcast was yesterday's release of the Federal Open Market Committee minutes. And one of the two big announcements from these minutes, or reveals rather, was that the 25 basis point rate hike that we had in March 
would have been a 50 basis point rate hike, but for the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So I guess you could thank Putin for that one, because if it wasn't for Putin, apparently we would have had a 50 basis point rate hike. But don't worry, we're going to get 50 basis points in May, regardless of what Putin does. The Fed is apparently set on 50 basis points. In fact, they revealed that they're likely to have multiple 50 basis point rate hikes. So maybe the next couple of meetings, we're going to have 50 basis point rate hikes. So this was interpreted as hawkish. And as a matter of fact, there were some FOMC members who wanted to raise by 50 basis points in March, regardless of what was going on in Ukraine. But they were obviously outvoted. And so the committee opted for 25 basis points instead. But obviously, 50 basis points was more appropriate or maybe less inappropriate than 25. But once again, the Fed caved in and didn't do what it thought was necessary. It kind of held back because it was concerned about the market or concerned about any short-term impact that a 50 basis point rate hike might have had. And so it backed away and compromised by doing 25 basis points. Now, maybe they would have liked to have done nothing, but they were probably too afraid to do nothing given all the tough talk. So they got away with doing the smallest rate hike they could, and that was 25 basis points. But the point is, if they caved and only did 25 basis points in March, when they thought 50 was more appropriate, who's to say the same thing's not going to happen in the future where they think they should do 50 or they do 25? And in fact, maybe they already think that 50 is too little. Maybe they think they should be moving rates up in 100 basis point increments, but for political reasons or because of the market, they're not doing what they think is appropriate. They're just doing what they feel they need to do in order not to lose face in this fake fight against inflation, which of course is what they're waging because if they really wanted to fight inflation the way they claim, rates would not still be at 25 basis points. They would not be waiting until May for this 50 basis point rate hike. They would have already increased interest rates by significantly more than that. Now, the other major release that was contained in these minutes was the size of the quantitative tightening program. That's how much the balance sheet is supposed to shrink on a monthly basis. And according to the Fed, it's going to be $95 billion a month of quantitative tightening. Now, remember, on the way up, they were doing $120 billion a month, I think, of quantitative easing, which was bigger than the $80 billion of quantitative easing they did the last time they were doing quantitative easing. So $95 billion a month of quantitative tightening, to me, is not a rapid reduction in the balance sheet the way Vice Chair Lyle Brainer indicated the previous day in her speech that kind of roiled the bond market because she talked about this rapid reduction in the balance sheet, if it's only going to be $95 billion a month, to me, that's not that rapid at all. Although if you multiply that by 12, that's $1.14 trillion of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities that the Fed is going to be selling on a monthly basis. Now, they claim they're not going to be selling. Again, it's going to be a passive runoff where they're just going to allow these bonds to mature and not roll them over. But if there's a given month where enough bonds don't mature, they may have to go into the market and sell. But as I explained in a prior podcast, 
This is a distinction without a difference. It doesn't matter whether they sell the bonds they have or allow the bonds they have to mature because either way, those bonds are going to be on the market for sale because either they sell the bonds themselves or they force the U.S. Treasury to sell more bonds so that they can redeem the bonds that the Fed is allowing to run off. So either way, the supply of bonds for sale in the private sector is going to increase, which means the private sector has to absorb that debt. The breakdown, again, is $60 billion per month in treasuries and $35 billion per month in mortgage-backed securities. But if you just look at the treasuries alone, on an annual basis, that's $720 billion. If the budget deficit is $2.5 trillion, which is about what they estimate, you're talking about increasing the official budget deficit by 30% to accommodate the additional selling from the Federal Reserve. But also, it's not just the budget deficits that we have to finance. It's the trade deficits. Remember, our trade deficits are now running north of $100 billion per month. That's $1.2 trillion of trade deficits that need to be financed, in addition to $2.5 trillion of budget deficits and $720 trillion of quantitative tightening, not counting the financing of mortgage-backed securities. Now, the question is, who is going to buy all of these bonds? Because the Federal Reserve was the biggest buyer, and now not only is the biggest buyer not buying, the biggest buyer is selling. So this is a disaster for the bond market, and it's why the bond market continues to fall. And in fact, yesterday's announcement that it was just going to be $95 billion a month in quantitative tightening, I actually think that would have surprised the markets in that it wasn't more that it wasn't a bigger number. I think people had braced for a bigger number, yet the bonds didn't even have a relief rally on the good news that quantitative tightening wasn't going to be as rapid as some had feared because the market was down yesterday and it got clobbered again today. In fact, one of the interesting things about the bond market today and yesterday was the widening of the yield curve. I don't talk about a widening very often. We've been talking about a narrowing. I'm talking about the gap between the 10-year and the 30-year because on my last podcast, I talked about the possibility of that inverting and the 10-year yield exceeding the 30-year yield. And we came damn close. I think it was two days ago, we were about two basis points away. That's all that separated the 30-year from the 10-year. So we got very close to inverting, and then we got a rough reversal. And based on the close today, there's now a 35 basis point spread, still small, but not nearly as narrow as it was the other day. The 10-year Treasury went off at 2.652 here on Thursday, off the high yield of the day, and the yield on the 30-year closed at two spot six eight seven there's your 35 basis point spread by the way the intraday high on the 30 year this is a new high for this move two spot seven one nine percent so almost two spot seven two on the yield so getting closer to 2.8 and again honing in on three percent we are going to be up at three percent very soon the most amazing thing about being way up at three percent is appreciating just how low 3% is, especially in historic terms, a 3% yield on a 30-year treasury is a very low yield. But what is even lower is a combination of a 3% yield on a 30-year treasury 
and 8% inflation. I mean, we've never had anything like this. We've never had yields so low and at the same time, inflation so high, which means real yields are at record lows. So if you think 3% is where this is going to stop, you ain't seen nothing yet. Bonds have so much further to rise just to get back to a historic normal level. But of course, you can't expect to have historically normal interest rates when you have historically abnormally high inflation. You can't have normal interest rates unless you have normal inflation. If you have very high inflation, well, you have to have very high interest rates. Well, we're not even at normal interest rates. We're still at very low interest rates. So we have a long way to rise. And by the way, when it comes to the balance sheet, even though the Fed is talking about shrinking its balance sheet and how this shrinkage is going to start in May, We got the numbers today for the Fed's balance sheet for the most recent week. And not only didn't it shrink at all, it actually expanded by a half a billion. Now, that's not a big expansion, but it is an expansion. The Treasury bond market is getting killed and the Federal Reserve hasn't sold any yet. So imagine how much weaker this bond market's going to be when this quantitative tightening program actually goes on autopilot and the Fed starts unloading one way or another 95 billion worth of treasuries and MBS onto the markets on a monthly basis. If you're ready to take your business to the next level, you'll need the right team to make it happen. Indeed makes it easy to hire and build a team with the right skills to make your dreams a reality. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only site where you're guaranteed to find quality applicants that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Indeed partners with you every step of the hiring process, finding great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessment, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you'll get a short list of quality candidates with resumes on Indeed that match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Plus, you only pay for qualified applicants that meet your must-have requirements. And Indeed delivers four times more hires than all the other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest. So join the more than 3 million businesses worldwide that already use Indeed to hire great talent fast. In fact, one of the things that I like most about Indeed is that you can do your hiring all in one place. With Instant Match, over 90% of employers get quality candidates as soon as they sponsor their job post, according to Indeed data. Candidates that you invite to apply through Instant Match are three times more likely to apply for your job than candidates who only see it on search alone. So start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Peter. Offer valid through April 30th. Go to Indeed.com slash Peter to claim your $75 credit before April 30th. Indeed.com slash Peter. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. And it's not only the U.S. government, of course, that needs to be concerned about increasing costs for financing its debts. Everybody who has debt needs to be concerned. In fact, we got some data today on consumer credit for the month of February, and this was a blowout number. January's increase in consumer credit was $8.9 billion. The expectation for February 
was $16.6 billion. Instead, consumer credit exploded by $41.9 billion in one month. Now, that is the second biggest increase in a month in consumer credit ever. Now, why are consumers borrowing so much money? In fact, if you look at where the biggest increase was, it was credit cards up 20.7%. Credit card debt surged from 3.1 billion increase in January to 18 billion in February. Again, that was the second highest jump ever. Also, you know, we had a big increase in auto loans up 8.4%. In fact, auto loans and student loans combined, they're now at the highest level on record. And all of this is taking place with record low interest rates now starting to surge. So we had all this record high debt. What made this record high debt affordable? Well, record low interest rates. Well, if the record high debt is setting new record highs, but now interest rates are no longer at record lows, interest rates are now surging, that creates a huge problem for this record amount of debt because the only thing keeping that debt affordable were these artificially low, record low interest rates, which are now a thing of the past. Rates are still low, but not nearly as low as they were, but more importantly, they're going much higher. But also, what does this say about the consumer? What does this say about the economy? that credit card debt exploded in the month of February. Well, first of all, it shatters the myth that the consumers are sitting on a pile of cash, right? A lot of people had savings because they got all their stimmy checks during COVID and people thought, well, they're still sitting on a pile of cash. They got lots of savings and so that's gonna power the consumer. Clearly, the consumer is now tapped out. They burned through those savings and now they're putting everything on plastic. So A, it indicates that that well is dried up and now is credit that has to drive the consumer. And of course, that's more problematic because the cost of that credit is going up. But I think another reason that consumers are running up more credit card debt is because the prices of the things they're buying with their credit cards are going up, like gasoline, like food. So if consumers are putting their grocery bill on a credit card, but now it costs a lot more money to fill up their cart with groceries. Well, they're having to charge a larger dollar amount. We know they're having to charge a much bigger dollar amount to fill up their car with gas. So if a tank of gas is more expensive and you're putting that tank on your credit card, well, obviously your credit card is running up a bigger balance. So This explosion in credit card debt is indicative of two problems. One, the consumer's tapped out and he's relying on credit. And two, the things he's buying with credit are costing a lot more money. And so he's putting a lot more on his credit card. But all of this happening with interest rates rising. So this is a big negative for the economy. And of course, all of this is happening just as the Fed is starting to raise interest rates and before the Fed has even started to shrink its balance sheet. So if the economy has this sizable a headwind with interest rates still at 25 basis points, with the Fed not even doing quantitative tightening, imagine the hurricane that the economy is going to run into when the Fed actually starts doing what it is still now only talking about doing. That's why what it's talking about doing Not only may it never get done, but if they start doing it, they will quickly reverse course 
when the economic damage is evident because the Fed is still so delusional. It believes that it can do all this, that it can shrink the balance sheet, that it can raise interest rates, and everything is going to be fine because it believes we have such a strong economy. Well, remember, it believed that the last time. It said that the balance sheet shrinking was going to be like watching paint dry because that's how much confidence the Fed had that they could do that. Now, maybe they were just bluffing. They knew that they couldn't do it, but they couldn't admit that. So they pretended it was going to be no big deal and they hoped for a miracle. Well, they didn't get a miracle last time. And it's even less likely this time because the economy is a much bigger bubble. There's far more leverage. Everybody is far more dependent on that cheap money. And therefore, everybody is even more vulnerable to the removal of that cheap money. And the Fed is going to find out just how vulnerable much sooner than it thinks. Going back to the market reaction to the FOMC minutes, stock market also was hit on Wednesday. The biggest decliners being the NASDAQ. The NASDAQ was down 2.2% on Wednesday. And again, this is what makes sense. As bonds are getting clobbered, as inflation is accelerating, it's the NASDAQ stocks, the growth stocks that should come down the most because these stocks benefited the most from an absence of inflation. They got the biggest boost from artificially low interest rates. So with a return of inflation and the removal of those artificially low interest rates, well, you're removing the props that were responsible for the big increase in these stocks. And so the decline, the bear market in tech stocks, the NASDAQ in general, the Kathy Woods portfolio, is only just getting started. And of course, people like Kathy Wood have no idea what's happened. They don't realize that the dynamics have changed. They're still living in the past, at least the recent past. If they were living in a more distant past, like the 1970s, they would understand what's in store for them. But since they weren't managing money in the 1970s, they have no idea. Now, Kathy Wood, she should remember them. I mean, she's older than I am, but I doubt she was in the business back then. So she doesn't have any recollection of what it's like to manage money at that time frame. Because during the time period she has been managing money, she's had 0% rates for most of that time. She's been in this big bull market. Remember, we had a 40-year bull market in bonds. And so people in the stock market rode that bond bull market to new high after new high. But now that we're in a major bear market in bonds that is just getting started, it's got a long way to go down. The stock market is in a lot of trouble, especially those high-flying growth stocks. In fact, that Kathy Wood ARK Innovation ETF was down 4.6% on Wednesday, more than twice the loss of the NASDAQ. Now, of course, the Dow Jones didn't fare nearly as bad. It was only down not even a half a percent on Wednesday, and it recovered a little over half those losses today. So not that big a drop in the Dow, but the NASDAQ only recovered 0.2%. So it's still down 2% on the two days. And not only did the ARK fund not recover, it actually dropped another 1.2% today on top of yesterday's losses. Now that was off the lows of the day, but it was still a negative close. In fact, the ARK Innovation ETF is now down 13% from its bear market rally high, which I think it hit last week. And I think the high of that bear market is in, and we are headed for new lows in that fund. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. 
The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Now, in contrast to the negative reaction in bonds and stocks, we had a positive, though muted, reaction in gold. Gold was actually up on Wednesday and up again on Thursday. Now, it wasn't a big move. Gold was only up about $4 an ounce yesterday and added about 6 bucks today. So a $10 move on the two days. We closed at 1932. But what's interesting about gold is not that it went up 10 bucks, but that it didn't go down 50 bucks. Because in the past, when you've seen these big drops in the bond market or the idea that the Fed is hawkish and that the Fed is real serious about fighting inflation and they're just going to put the pedal to the metal when it comes to rate hikes and nothing's going to stop them and it's full speed ahead and rates are going way up. Normally, that type of tough talk is bearish for gold. It gets people selling gold because they're afraid of these higher interest rates and the impact it's going to have on gold. So the fact that all this tough talk is not causing the price of gold to fall is very bullish. Yes, it hasn't got up because there is still some selling with respect to this narrative, but not enough selling to drive the price lower. What's more significant is that people are willing to step up and buy, and the buyers are so aggressive that they're not actually getting to buy the dip. Maybe they're hoping to buy a dip on this supposed bearish news, but there's too much buying coming in for there to be any dip. And so the market is going up under a circumstance where most would believe it would go down. And what that tells me is if a market won't go down on bad news, and this is supposedly bad news for gold, a Fed aggressively committed to fighting inflation and doing whatever it takes to stamp it out, that is supposed to be according to the conventional wisdom, which I know is wrong, but the convention doesn't know that. The average Wall Street trader doesn't know that. So you've got all this bad news coming for gold and gold's not going down. And they say if a market won't go down on bad news, well, that's a good sign that it's about to go up. And I think gold is about to go way up because all this bad news about gold is actually good news about gold because it's all about inflation. Inflation is a huge problem. The Fed is pretending it's going to do something about it, just like it pretended the problem didn't exist, just like it pretended it was transitory. And all of this is extremely bullish for gold. And I think a big move up can happen in the gold market any day. Just like I think a big move down in the bond market can happen any day, they're the opposite side of the same coin. Now, while I'm talking about gold, of course, I also want to talk about fool's gold and that is Bitcoin, because unlike actual gold that held up very well on Wednesday, Bitcoin got clobbered. In fact, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, GBTC, was down 6% on Wednesday alone. Now, it did rise slightly today, but only about one half of 1%, so barely recovered any of those losses. So Bitcoin, again, following the Kathy Wood ARK fund down, and not gold up because it has far more in common with money losing tech stocks 
than it does with actual gold. And by the way, while I'm on the topic of Bitcoin, there is a major conference going on in Miami today. I think this one is being billed as the biggest Bitcoin conference ever. In fact, every conference is the biggest one ever. Maybe they keep getting bigger and bigger. But one of the reasons they have to keep having these conferences is they have to keep pumping Bitcoin. They need more buyers. They need to sucker in more people into the scam, into the pyramid. So they have to keep having these conferences. Of course, they're spending lots of money. Where's all this money coming from to pay for all these conferences? This is all the money that is being lost by the people who are buying into this Bitcoin mania. But there's a lot of big people there. A lot of people that refuse to debate me are there. In fact, I saw two of the people who refuse to debate me on a panel. I didn't catch everything they said, but Kathy Wood and Michael Saylor were up there talking about Bitcoin. And I caught a small piece of the conversation. And one of the things that Kathy Wood was talking about was how politically popular Bitcoin had become and that politicians We're now rushing to embrace Bitcoin on both sides of the aisle. And of course, that makes sense because a lot of their constituents now own Bitcoin. And once you own Bitcoin, you're almost like a single issue voter, kind of like the pro-choicers or the right to lifers. I mean, that's their main litmus test. You know, you either got to be pro-choice or pro-life and nothing else matters if you don't check the right box. I think the same thing is happening now for some of these people who are all in on this Bitcoin pyramid. They're basically betting it all on Bitcoin. And so that's their one issue that they ride or die by. It's where's your stance on Bitcoin? And so the politicians know that there are some voters who only care about Bitcoin. And all you have to do to win their vote is say, yeah, me too on Bitcoin. I'm in favor of positive legislation. So it doesn't surprise me that politicians are doing this because they put their finger in the air and they see where the wind is blowing. And right now there's a lot of wind blowing, most of it hot air on Bitcoin. And so sure, these politicians are jumping on this bandwagon. It's no big deal to lend your support to crypto. If it means you get donations from crypto people, you get votes from crypto people. But all of this is going to change when the air comes out of this bubble. And these politicians are going to flip on a dime. It's going to be from, oh yeah, I support Bitcoin to, oh my God, we got to go after all the bad actors who ripped everybody off with Bitcoin. They're going to be pointing fingers and looking for who you're going to blame. And, oh, we need more regulation. We need more government. We need to go after these crooks who stole all this money and ran all these Ponzi schemes and pump and dumps. That's what's going to happen after the music stops, right? That's what typically happens. That's what happened during the dot-com bubble. All these politicians loved all these dot-coms until the bubble popped. And then all of a sudden they were looking for new regulations and, and who can we blame for all all these losses on Wall Street. Well, the same thing is going to happen when we have all these losses in crypto. And I think a lot of the people now who have a lot of money in crypto, once they end up losing a lot of money in crypto, they're going to want some of that money back too. They're probably going to be looking to government to try to get some of the money back that they lost. I mean, that's what always happens. But it makes perfect sense that you've got this political support now in a bubble that Kathy Wood has no idea that she's in. And by the way, I found out that she's launching her own Bitcoin fund too. I mean, birds of a feather all flocking together. I mean, all these guys, that's a love fest, but it makes perfect sense that Kathy Wood is managing a portfolio of the most overvalued stocks in the world. And she's also attracted to Bitcoin, which is an overvalued token. These are all 
interrelated, highly speculative assets. And that's why there's such a strong correlation between the stocks in her fund and cryptocurrencies. I mean, why is she even bothering to launch a crypto fund? She's already got the equivalent of a crypto fund in the ARK ETF. I mean, they're all the same. What's the difference? There's no inverse correlation. They're all going to rise and fall together. So why even bother to diversify if you're diversified into stuff that is 100% correlated with the stuff you already have? But the most ridiculous presentation that I happen to catch a part of was the one given by PayPal founder Peter Thiel, who was again repeating the idea that Bitcoin is digital gold and therefore Bitcoin should have the same market cap as gold. And so he said the market cap of gold is about 12 trillion and Bitcoin is only about 800 billion. So, you know, what is that? We have 15x to go up basically for Bitcoin to have its rightful equality in terms of gold so that Bitcoin can have gold's market share, which makes no sense whatsoever. Because if you assume that all of gold's market share is due to its store of value properties as a monetary equivalent, if Bitcoin were to replace gold and have a $12 trillion market cap, gold's market cap would have to go to zero. Gold would have to be worthless because if you assume that Bitcoin and gold are going to share that market, well, if the entire market is 12.8 billion now, or actually I think 13 billion because the gold market cap is around 12.12 trillion. So if you got a $13 billion market cap and Bitcoin is going to take some of that market cap, then it can't take all of it unless you claim gold is worthless. So Bitcoin wouldn't go all the way to 12 trillion. Maybe you could say they'll split the market 50-50 and so gold will be worth 6 trillion and Bitcoin would be worth 6 trillion. But there's no way that you could say that Bitcoin will take all of gold's market cap and gold will be worthless, especially when you consider that about half of that 12 trillion is for jewelry. How can anybody argue that Bitcoin is going to take gold's market cap in the jewelry industry? Can you make any jewelry out of Bitcoin? No, you can't make any. So unless people are going to have jewelry made of nothing, there's no way that Bitcoin can take that market cap, which again shows you how little Bitcoiners understand about gold when they're making these pie-in-the-sky forecasts about what Bitcoin's market cap is going to be. But this guy went even better than that when it comes to pie in the sky because then the guy went back to 1980 which was the bottom of the stock bear market and the high of gold where gold was at like $850 and at that time the total value of all the gold was about two and a half trillion and the total value of all the equities was about two and a half trillion I don't remember the exact numbers but it was close so in other words all the stocks in the world equaled all the gold in the world and that represented a high point for gold and a low point for stocks. Now, we may be back at that point at some point in the future. Sometime over the next decade, we may see that one-to-one -one relationship between gold and equities reestablished. But that wasn't the point this guy was making. This guy was making the point that Bitcoin should have gold's market cap. But then Bitcoin should have the same market cap relative to equities that gold had in 1980. So in other words, this guy thinks the price of Bitcoin is going to go up more than 100x. So instead of looking at this data and saying, hey, this is a great time to buy gold because gold is historically cheap relative to equities, he's saying, no, 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 forget gold. 
by Bitcoin because Bitcoin should have gold's market cap now and have gold's market cap in relation to equities at the bottom of this next bear market because obviously this guy thinks that equities are going to lose a lot of their value in terms of Bitcoin. Now, he should be thinking they're going to lose a lot of their value in terms of gold because Bitcoin is nothing. The idea that Bitcoin is digital gold, so it should have the same market cap as real gold is nonsense because who said Bitcoin is digital gold? Just the people who own it, but to the people who don't own it, it looks nothing like actual gold. I mean, saying that Bitcoin should have the same value as real gold would be like saying, well, digital houses should have the same market value as actual houses. Why? They don't have anything in common. A digital house has nothing in common with a real house. And a digital gold, well, has nothing in common with real gold. It's almost like saying that monopoly money should have the same value as real money. Not that real money is that real, but it's not monopoly money. And just because you want to pretend something is real money doesn't mean it has actual value in the real world. It has pretend value in your pretend world. So all the people who want to pretend that Bitcoin is digital gold, well, you can go on pretending all you want, but in the real world, it's monopoly money and nobody is going to accept it. And all of these forecasts are just sheer nonsense. But even more ridiculous than that, if the value of Bitcoin equaled the value of all the world's stocks combined, what about all the other cryptocurrencies, the altcoins? Right now, Bitcoin is about 40% of the $2 trillion market cap of crypto. So if Bitcoin stayed at 40%, then if Bitcoin was equal to the total market cap of all the world's equities, then the crypto market, including Bitcoin and all the altcoins, would be about triple the value of all the world's equities. How ridiculous is that? Now, maybe Peter Thiel just assumes that in a world where Bitcoin equals all of the global stocks, that all the altcoins have gone to zero. I don't know, maybe he's a Bitcoin maximalist and thinks Ethereum and every other coin is worth zero and all the value would go to Bitcoin. But even in that world, the comparison is utter nonsense. And it's exactly asinine comments like that that you would expect to hear, not just at the top of a market, but at the blow-off top of a speculative mania which is exactly what we have in Bitcoin. But you have this entire convention of people, just a love fest reinforcing all this nonsense. The most significant aspect of all of this is despite this conference, the price of Bitcoin is falling. In fact, Bitcoin is lower today by over 20% than it was a year ago, close to 30% almost from where it was an entire year ago. All this hype, all this promotion, all these conferences, all these new companies entering the space, all this pie in the sky promises, and the market is going down. The Bitcoiners have got to ask themselves, why is this happening, right? They're so confident that Bitcoin is going to go up 100 times, and they inundate my Twitter feed. Anytime I send out a tweet, it's all about Bitcoin, 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 when they respond, because they're so confident that they're right. There's no way that they're wrong. And whenever you see this level of conviction, of confidence, it usually is indicative that the market's going to go the other way because people have thrown caution to the wind and they're all in because they're so confident. You want a situation where people are not so confident because that means they have a lot of dry powder. But if you're 100% sure that Bitcoin has nowhere to go but up, 
well, then you've got everything you've got already in the Bitcoin. Because what's the point of keeping dry powder if you don't think there's any reason to hold it? If you're not at all concerned, if you're not worried about the price going down, well, then you put all your money in, which is unfortunately the position that all these people are already in, which is why the price is not going up. Because the people who want to buy it already own it. And there's not that many people who don't own it that still want to get in, but you have a lot of people that do own it that want to get out. Oh, by the way, don't forget to join me at the Traders Summit this weekend. You can sign up for free at tsevent.com. If saving more and spending less is one of your top goals for 2022, then why are you still paying insane amounts of money every month for wireless? Switching to Mint Mobile is the easiest way to save this year. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you maximize your savings with plans that start as low as just 15 bucks a month. In fact, when it came time to get wireless service for my eight-year-old, Mint Mobile was the perfect solution. For people looking for extra savings this year, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan. Keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. With Mint Mobile, you can choose the amount of monthly data that's right for you and stop paying for data that you never use. So switch to Mint Mobile today and get premium wireless service starting at just $15 a month. So to get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and have it shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com gold. That's mintmobile.com gold. Cut your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com gold. I want to finish up the podcast, though, by turning to politics a little bit, because on Friday on Capitol Hill, the House of Representatives actually passed something that I agree with, and this is a bill to decriminalize marijuana, which, of course, the only time the government ever does something right is when it's correcting something that it's already done wrong. So in other words, I can't really say, hey, I want to give the government credit for decriminalizing something that never should have been criminalized in the first place. So yes, they made a mistake and now they're correcting their own mistake. Yes, it's a good thing when you correct your own mistakes, but it's a bad thing to make the mistake in the first place. So it's kind of hard to, to thank government for correcting a wrong that it did, but that's about the only compliment that I'm gonna give for government because the only thing it can do is undo. Right? When I was running for office, that was my promise. I don't wanna do anything. I just wanna undo the mistakes of the past. I'm not gonna create any new government programs. My goal is to eliminate the ones that already exist. I wanna bring back the program that actually works, which is free market capitalism. That's what creates prosperity, not government. And so government needs to get out of the way, and that would include repealing these laws that have made cannabis illegal. Now, of course, when they legalize it, they want to tax it. So they also are imposing an 8% sales tax, which who knows, that's just the opening bid. If they actually do end up legalizing it, that tax may go higher and higher. But eventually, of course, those high taxes become destructive because then you create a black market. That's what we're seeing now in, in states like California, where these state governments are trying to tax the marijuana industry so much that most people are just buying the illegal weed because they don't have to pay the tax. And so that's destroying the profitability for the legal growers because they have to pay the tax. And so they're competing with the illegal growers who don't. And in fact, now that it's been decriminalized, it's like the criminals are getting away with it because the government is not enforcing the laws as much 
now that it's legal. And so the illegal guys are more emboldened to produce even more cannabis. And the consumer, they just want to buy the best deal. And so they don't seem to care if they buy it legally or illegally because they're not worried about being fined or going to jail. So they're just buying from the lowest supplier. And these are the guys that are growing it illegally. So this, again, is the problem with government taxes. You create these black markets. So they need to lower the tax so it doesn't make it difficult for the businesses to survive. But one of the big problems, and this is what I want to talk about, or two problems, is number one, why is the fact that cannabis is illegal, why is that illegal on the part of the government? Well, there's nothing in the Constitution that says that the government can make marijuana, or anything else for that matter, illegal. People can consume any products they want. Right? It's that the Constitution is not there to control the people. It's there to control and limit the federal government. That's why it was written. So if a state government wants to have laws against marijuana, well, they have to do that in harmony with the state Constitution. But the federal Constitution has no problem with that because the federal Constitution doesn't limit the powers of the states unless those limitations are specifically written into the Constitution. So if the Constitution doesn't read that a state can't do something, well, then it can do it. Again, it's the opposite for the federal government. The federal government can only do what the Constitution specifically authorizes it to do. And if it's not so authorized, it can't do it. But the states can do whatever they want as long as it's not prohibited by the Constitution. And there's nothing in the Constitution that prohibits state governments from making marijuana illegal. But there's nothing in that Constitution that authorizes the federal government to make it illegal. Now, the same thing applied to alcohol, which is why when the U.S. government wanted to make the consumption of alcohol illegal, they could not do it with legislation. They had to do it with a constitutional amendment. And we got the 18th Amendment, which was proposed in 1917 and ratified two years later in 1919, because it took a couple of years to get this amendment ratified by Congress. But that's what they had to do in order to ban alcohol. Well, if they had to do that to ban alcohol, it stands to reason that they would have to do it to ban marijuana. I mean, it's the same thing. The Constitution hasn't changed since 1917. So if they had to amend it to ban alcohol, well, then they should have had to amend it to ban marijuana. And that is true, but they didn't do it because they just ignored the Constitution. In fact, let me actually read the text of the 18th Amendment. It reads, after one year from the ratification of this article, the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors within the importation thereof into or the exportation thereof from the United States in all of its territory subject to the jurisdiction thereof for beverage purposes is hereby prohibited. So you notice they didn't make it illegal to consume alcohol. You just couldn't manufacture it, sell it, or transport it. So if you happen to load up on alcohol prior to the amendment going into effect, well, you were free to drink all you wanted. You just couldn't take some of your alcohol, put it in the trunk of your car, and drive it to your friend's house because that would have been illegal under the 18th Amendment. So they basically stopped the alcohol industry. You couldn't make it. You couldn't import it. 
And that included individuals. I mean, if you grew your own alcohol, you had a still in the backyard and you made moonshine, that was still illegal. So it had nothing to do with simply a business manufacturing and selling it. You couldn't even manufacture it for personal consumption. Now, I don't know why they didn't just say you can't consume it. Maybe that was a bridge too far for the government at that time. They didn't want to say you can't drink something. They just said, hey, you can't produce it or sell it or transport it. But the significant thing is that the Constitution had to be amended in order for the government to do that. Well, if they had to do that for alcohol, why is marijuana any different? Why are any drugs any different? Why is heroin? Why is cocaine? Why doesn't the government have to amend the Constitution in order to limit the people's ability to consume those drugs? And the answer is they do. But they don't because the federal judges let the government get away with murder. And by the way, we had a new federal justice confirmed today to the Supreme Court, and she's going to be just as bad as all the others. She's going to completely ignore the Constitution to ratify the growth of government, which she clearly supports because she doesn't believe in any of the principles that this country was founded on. So she really doesn't want to enforce a document with which she almost entirely disagrees. The Constitution is an impediment to the entire Biden agenda. So you obviously can't be in favor of the Biden agenda and in favor of the Constitution at the same time. So if you are a Biden nominee and you're up there to help advance the president's agenda, well, the Constitution is just some nuisance that gets in your way, which is why that's a particular problem when you are a Supreme Court justice and your job is to enforce the Constitution But your agenda is to completely undermine and get around that Constitution. But the reason that marijuana is illegal is because Congress passed the law without amending the Constitution. It started with the Marijuana Tax Act in 1937. Basically, they called it a tax, but they really just made it illegal in the United States. And the reason you even had that is you had that film Reefer Madness that came out in 1936, and that created a lot of hysteria on the part of the public. And so there was a lot of agitation to do something about this marijuana problem. And so that's what got Congress to pass that act in 1937, which ended up being declared unconstitutional because it effectively made marijuana illegal throughout the United States, and they had no power to do that. And so it was struck down. But that act was eventually declared unconstitutional in 1969. Why? Well, because the U.S. government had no constitutional authority to ban marijuana, and so the court threw it out. But then the very following year, the government replaced it with another unconstitutional act, which is still on the books today because the Supreme Court didn't strike that one down, and that is the Controlled Substance Act of 1970. And that legislation classified marijuana as well as heroin, LSD, and other drugs as Schedule One drugs, and it basically prohibited them, and they remain prohibited to this date on a federal level. Even though they are now legal in many states, it is still illegal in the federal government, which is really complicating the problems for these marijuana companies that are not only dealing with high local taxes in their states, 
but they're trying to operate in an environment where the federal government claims what they're doing is illegal. So it makes it very difficult for them to bank because a lot of banks don't want to risk working with them because they're basically facilitating a crime and they're exposing themselves to sanctions. So a lot of these businesses end up being cash. But one particular problem that they have that I want to talk about again because it relates to a topic that I have been discussing on this podcast and that is the illegal taxation under the 16th amendment of revenues under the guise of taxing income just like the Biden administration now wants to tax unrealized capital gains and call it income and I explained on a prior podcast why they can't do that because the 16th amendment only authorizes a tax on income, and therefore what income is, is a legal definition that Congress cannot alter at a whim because Congress can't change the Constitution with legislation. So once the Supreme Court establishes the definition of income, Congress can't change it unless they want to amend the Constitution so that they can tax something that's not income without regard to apportionment, because as of right now, that exemption on a direct tax only applies to income and not something that the government wants to call income so it can get around the Constitution and the 16th Amendment and tax it. But that's exactly what they're doing with marijuana. There's a section in the Internal Revenue Code 280E. And what 280E is about was the government's attempt to reverse a 1981 case in tax court. And in that case, there was a guy who was trafficking in drugs, amphetamines, cocaine, marijuana, but he was reporting his income and he was deducting his expenses. He had some rent for wherever he used to sell his drugs. There was some packaging material, telephone, automobile expenses. You know, he had to buy a scale to weigh the pot. So he deducted all this stuff, which of course you can do because all this stuff is a business expense. I mean, if you're selling pot, by weight, well, you got to weigh it so you know how much you're selling, so you know how much to charge. So these are all normal business expenses. So this guy deducted all that and the government said, wait a minute, we're not going to let you deduct anything. You're making your money illegally. You're selling drugs. We're not going to allow you all these deductions. Well, the court said, no, he's running a business, legal or illegal. You're taxing his income and, you know, income is revenue minus expenses. And so the guy gets the deduction. So then the government came in and they passed this new rule that says that if you are doing something illegal, you don't get those deductions. Now, there are some deductions you get, like if you buy marijuana at one price and turn around and resell it at a higher price, you can deduct the cost of the marijuana you bought from the cost of what you sold, but you can't deduct your other business-related expenses. And to me, that's an arbitrary decision on the part of the government to try to change the real meaning of income. Because remember, as I said in an earlier podcast, the Internal Revenue Code doesn't even define income. It defines gross income. The courts have defined income, and income is a gain. Income is a profit. And so in order to derive that gain, all expenses have to be taken into consideration. It's not up to the government to exclude certain expenses just because it wants to. But that is the current conventional wisdom because there was a court challenge of this rule that went all the way up to the appellate court. It was the 10th Circuit and the decision came down in 2018 
and it upheld the constitutionality of this provision. And according to the judge, and this is a quote, that the deductions allowable under Section 162, which are the ordinary and necessary expenses paid incurred in running a trade or business, according to this judge, those deductions are matters of legislative grace. And Congress may generally condition, limit, or deny deductions from gross income in arriving at a net which is to be taxed. That's what the Tenth Circuit wrote, and the Tenth Circuit is wrong. Congress cannot do that because Congress cannot alter the definition of income. It's not gross income that's being taxed. It is income because the 16th Amendment doesn't read gross income. It reads income. If they want to tax something other than income, then it is still bound by the rules of apportionment, and they are not apportioning this. So that particular issue was raised in this appeal. They raised that 16th Amendment direct tax apportionment issue, but the 10th Circuit completely ignored it because they wanted to support this illegal government provision in the Internal Revenue Code because they believed in big government, and so they ignored the Constitution. Now, I don't know if the plaintiffs who lost this case tried to appeal it up to the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court obviously never heard this case, so there is no Supreme Court decision to validate this. The only Supreme Court decisions that bear on the definition of income would directly contradict this Tenth Circuit ruling that the government can decide what it wants to include in income and what it wants to exclude. Because if you exclude certain deductions, then you're not taxing income under the 16th Amendment. Because income under that amendment has a legal definition, which the Supreme Court has already set and which the U.S. government and now the Tenth Circuit is ignoring. But the other problem with this rule, not only that it's unconstitutional, but think about the extra problem that legal cannabis growers are now confronted with. Because if you're in California and you're legally you know, growing or selling cannabis and you're competing with the illegal growers who aren't charging the state sales tax, but they're also probably not even paying income tax because they're running a cash business, they're running it illegally under the table, so they're probably not paying any tax at all. They're in the underground economy. But here you are trying to do it by the book and you're at a competitive disadvantage because of these high taxes on your sales. But think about your income tax rate because your income tax rate is much higher than the rate that most small businesses face because you can't deduct all these expenses. So you're not actually being taxed on your income. In many cases, you're being taxed on your revenue. Yes, you get some cost of goods sold deductions, but you may be getting taxed on a number that is much bigger than what you actually made. And so your effective tax rate is actually much higher than the legislative rate that actually applies to other people who are running businesses that the federal government deems legal. And so they're allowed to take the credit for their deductions and you're not. So these legal cannabis companies are facing extraordinarily high income tax rates 
in addition to these high sales taxes. So they are at a major, major competitive disadvantage. You know, that's one of the reasons that so many of these cannabis companies, their share prices have collapsed. And I talked about the cannabis stock bubble in real time as it was exploding and everybody was buying these stocks because they were so exciting and it was a brand new thing and you were blazing new territory. And a lot of people didn't understand the huge impediments that a lot of these companies were gonna face to actual profitability. One of them was this draconian tax rate that they were subject to, and also the fact that they were still going to be competing not only with each other, but with all the illegal growers that had a huge competitive advantage and how this whole industry was really commoditized as much as a lot of people were talking about all the branding and you know these first movers. At the end of the day, a lot of people don't really care. You know, pot is pot. I mean, they'll buy it. It doesn't really matter. And they're just buying it from the lowest cost provider. And the lowest cost provider is probably the guy who's not paying any federal income tax and not paying any sales tax. And so people have no qualms about buying their pot that way. In fact, the people who are buying pot, a lot of these guys were buying it when it was completely illegal and they were willing to break those laws. And so it stands the reason that now these laws, which are even less consequential, I mean, they probably face a smaller chance of facing any legal consequence from buying pot illegally now than they did buying it 10 years ago. So clearly they're just gonna continue with that pattern. And so what really needs to happen is this bill that was passed by the House of Representatives needs to be passed by the United States Senate. The problem is it probably won't be. I mean, there's a lot of Republicans, and unfortunately, it's the Republicans that generally come down on the wrong side of the drug legalization issue. Republicans are supposed to believe in small government, except when it comes to limiting individual freedoms to choose what you want to do with your body. Then all of a sudden, they become in favor of big government. That's part of the inherent contradiction of being a Republican, because you're supposedly about freedom, And freedom means choice, right? You're supposed to be pro-choice if you're a Republican. Instead, you're anti-choice when it comes to what you want to do with your own body. Then you get the Democrats who supposedly are pro-choice. They want individuals to decide what they do with their own bodies, but then they want to tell them what to do in every other aspect of their life. They want to control everything else they do. But yes, you have certain freedoms, like you can smoke pot if you want to, but we're going to regulate the hell out of you in every other aspect of your life. And the Republicans are like, well, we're going to remove the regulations in other parts of your life, but we're going to force you not to smoke pot, right? We're going to make sure that we decide for you what you can and cannot put into your own body. So in that respect, I'm more like a Democrat than I am a Republican, which is what makes me a libertarian because the libertarians are consistent. They believe in limiting government and maximizing freedom in all aspects, economically, socially, get the government out of your way, empower people to make their own decisions in the workplace, in the marketplace, in the bedroom, in their own home, wherever they happen to be. But we need to get this legislation passed through the United States Senate. I think Biden would sign it if it can only get through the U.S. Senate. And the biggest impediment is the Republicans in that Senate. And in fact, I remember when I ran for Senate in Connecticut and we were at the convention and I was trying to get enough votes to be nominated so I wouldn't have to petition my way on the ballot, which is what I ended up doing. So I had enough votes and it looked like I was going to get there. And so Linda McMahon, 
who, in violation of all the convention rules, had all of her paid staffers, you know, all my staffers were volunteers and all lenders were working for the cash, but she had all these people on the convention floor and the rules said that you couldn't have anybody there. But last minute, what she had was she had all these people running around whispering in the ears of all the delegates, Peter Schiff wants to legalize marijuana or Peter Schiff wants to legalize heroin or cocaine, whatever it was. And that was scaring the hell out of the Republicans. Oh my God, this guy is radical. He wants to legalize all these drugs. And they don't understand my arguments. Now, I never made it an issue of my campaign because I knew that it wasn't a big issue to win votes in a Republican primary taking on drugs. So I never really talked about it on the campaign trail. But of course, I talked about it in public. There was a record on the internet of my stance and why I take that stance. I mean, I mentioned the 18th Amendment just earlier in the podcast. Well, that amendment was repealed. And one of the reasons was because it didn't work. They made it illegal to have alcohol. And so what did they create? Organized crime, a black market. The crazy thing about prohibition is that there were more speakeasies during prohibition than there were bars before prohibition. The government actually made it illegal to drink alcohol and then more people started drinking alcohol. The opposite of what the government intended. All of a sudden, drinking alcohol was cooler than ever before. Everybody wanted to drink alcohol because you weren't supposed to do it. So doing it was extra special. You were extra cool. And you can look at all the other evidence, all the ingredients that went into making alcohol, the sales of all those ingredients shot up during prohibition because even though it was illegal to make alcohol, there was so much more being made. But where was the money going to? Organized crime. Crimes exploded with prohibition because now it was the criminals who were making all the alcohol and it was the criminals who were making all the money. And so in order to get rid of the crime, they got rid of the 18th Amendment by repealing it. And that is one of the reasons that I want to make drugs legal is I want to get the criminal element out of it. And not only do I want to get the gangs out of drugs, I don't want people having to steal money from law-abiding citizens to afford to buy drugs. Because in an environment where drugs are legal, they're a lot less expensive. So I don't have to worry about a drug addict robbing me, ripping the radio out of my car or whatever they're doing because he needs money to buy drugs. Because in a world of legal drugs, drugs are a lot less expensive. And so you don't have to steal to get them. And of course, you take the pushers out, you take the crime out, you take the corruption out of police departments, out of government. You stop putting people in jail because they use pot. There are so many benefits to decriminalizing marijuana, cocaine, heroin, even the hardest of drugs. Not that I'm in favor of people taking these drugs. I just think that fewer people will take them if they're legal because you won't have any pushers and you won't have all the impurities. A lot of people get in trouble with drugs because of what they're cut with, because the criminals are just trying to cut corners. But if the products were legal, they wouldn't be nearly as damaging to your health. We wouldn't have anywhere near the number of overdoses. And then we can treat drug addiction as a health problem. And that is a criminal problem. And think about all the resources, all the police departments. Again, not only that they're corrupted by drugs and all the bribes they take from people who are earning a living in the drug trade, but think about all the resources that would be freed up if all this police weren't out there enforcing all these victimless crimes. The same thing with vice, prostitution. I mean, why are we wasting manpower and resources going after people who are just 
making decisions that we disapprove of with our own bodies, why don't we go after real crime, violent crime, where people rob other people, right? Mug other people, rape other people, kill other people. That's what the police should be focused on. Not somebody that wants to hire the services of a prostitute and you have two adults making a consenting exchange of money for services where nobody is injured, just allow that to happen. Or somebody wants to smoke pot or wants to do another kind of drug, let them do it. I mean, we let people do all sorts of things that are not healthy. I mean, we let people eat junk food and smoke cigarettes and people engage in all kinds of risky behaviors. So why make a distinction there? There is a huge negative consequence from doing this. The country learned a valuable lesson from prohibition of alcohol. It's unfortunate that we haven't learned any lesson from prohibition of other drugs. (laughs) 